0: Howdy folks, and welcome to another edition of Question and Response, a podcast by Trinity Grace Church. My name is Jacob, and joining me today is the man, the only man I know who puts an extra hard consonant in the word especially. <laughs> Michael Novak, how are you doing,
1: man? Good, and I'm so I'm so honored that you uh know that about me. That's yeah, amazing.
0: On this especially cold <laughs> March night, yes. Texas forgot that it was March, apparently. How's your week been?
1: Uh, well, I was made for warm weather. I told myself <laughs> I'd never live in a place without palm trees again. Oh, man. And so when we get down to 30, 32 degrees, it does not feel good.
0: Yep. Unseasonably cold, but, uh, you know, we'll be at 100 degrees before too long. That's
1: right. So. Enjoy it while we got it. Yeah, so
0: we're going to answer some questions today. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for people to explore the things that are making them curious, to continue the conversation just beyond Sunday morning. Um, there's some deep stuff that we talk about, in it. Obviously, we'll spurn some questions every time.
1: Yeah, and it seems like it has. We've gotten yep. some really great questions and some really challenging questions. Oh, yeah. People have not held back.
0: Yep, I think we talked about Sola Scriptura the first night, uh, a demon possession last week. Uh, today, we've got some more hard hitters. <laughs> yep. So, Okay, so first question says this. There seem to be practices condoned in the Bible that we today do not condone, like slavery and genocide. How do Christians approach these difficult aspects of what the Bible teaches?
1: That is a hard-hitting question. Uh, it's it's a tough one to answer. Uh, it's one that perturbs lots of folks as they consider the claims of Christianity. In fact, especially that first one uh, with regard to genocide.
0: Everyone heard that, right? X especially.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Go on. Um. Yeah. But that first question uh, about genocide, uh, I believe, is pointing to the, um, what we find, the phenomenon that we find in uh, the book of Joshua and Judges, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where God's people are sent into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they are commanded to drive out um, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Parasites. Um, not really Parasites. Um, all the other ites. All the other ites, though. Uh, they're from the land of Canaan. And I think that there are a few important things to keep in mind when you consider this call of God to move into the land of Canaan and clear it out. First of which, uh, it wasn't carried out on the basis of race necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, the purpose was to break down the altars uh, and to evict pagan worship from the land that God's people were supposed to call home. Uh, and so... Uh, this was not um, war that was carried out on the basis of race primarily. It's primarily carried out on the basis of needing uh, a purified land. Yeah. The second thing is that it wasn't meant um, to necessarily be imperialistic expansion. Um, when you see God's people move into Canaan and drive the folks out uh, of that land, uh, they're not always allowed to plunder and enslave the people with whom they did battle. In fact, you see in Joshua chapter 7, Achan, he kept some plunder from one of those Canaanite cities, and God actually punished him and punished the people. Mm. Uh, they weren't in it for their own necessarily expansion uh, or their own enrichment uh, when, they, when they were moving in to take over this land. They were, they were really called to create a country where they could serve and honor the Lord in the right way. Uh, And lastly, the war was carried out, and a lot of theologians um, point this fact out, as God's judgment on these people. A theologian named Meredith Klein actually coined the term the intrusion ethic, meaning that judgment in this instance was brought early upon these people. Mm -hmm. Um, They would have received this judgment on the day of the Lord, but because they were so... Um, evil, uh, because uh, because their sin had uh, risen to such a level, um, God used His people to bring judgment upon them prematurely. That's
0: interesting that you bring that up because doesn't God say to to Joseph or Jacob um, when they go into Egypt that they that He couldn't deliver to them the promised land because the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet full? Yes, is that related to that? It
1: is. It is related to that. I think that that's a great catch there uh, and a great thing to point out um, that. Uh, it fits right in with this intrusion uh, ethic, where judgment is brought upon these mm-hmm. um, these nations uh, that called Canaan home. And lastly, uh, something to think about is that this war was initiated through direct revelation to Joshua and through Joshua. Uh, And so God was still talking at this point in time. Mm -hmm. He was still speaking to his people uh, in a very direct way uh, that he no longer does now that we have the books uh, of the Old and the New Testament. Um, And so uh, God's people were getting direct revelation and direct instruction straight from the mouth of Mm -hmm. the Lord. Um, And so it's not our call now, is what I'm trying to say by saying that. Now uh, the church is made up of every nation, tribe, tongue, ethnicity, yeah. uh, and we don't carry a sword. Uh, in fact, we're called to move out in um, in service. Uh, we're called to embrace our weaknesses uh, and allow God to use those in order to bring Him glory and bring people in uh, to His kingdom. And the other thing I'll mention, and this is the last thing I'll mention is we shouldn't assume that we would be more enlightened than these people yeah. if we were in their situation. Absolutely. You can't, as a 21st century person, you can't look at an ancient person and and say,
0: why don't you think the same thing that we do? Because in a thousand years, people will look at us and say, maybe, why do you eat animals? That's savage in a thousand years.
1: Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it was business as usual yeah. in the Old Testament. And we read it with our 21st century Americanized eyes. And it's really foreign. Um and um, and this doesn't necessarily tie this question up with a neat bow, um, but these are some thoughts uh, to get the gears turning and hopefully um, allow you to think through uh, this type of question uh, with some theological and cultural categories.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what about slavery?
1: Well, slavery is another issue, and we see that both in the pages of the Old and the New Testament. We see the New Testament writers, both Paul and Peter, address the practice of slavery in the New Testament. Few places, normally at the end of the epistles that they're writing, mm-hmm. um, they give instructions to families, they give instructions to um, to slave owners and to slaves. In Ephesians chapter six, verse five, Paul says, "Slaves, obey your earthly masters." In Colossians chapter three, verse twenty-two, Paul says, "Slaves, obey in everything your earthly masters." In 1 Peter 2.18, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters. And it's important to understand right off the bat that slavery, uh, in Peter and Paul's mind, slavery in uh, the first century Greco-Roman world, was completely different in many ways than how we conceive of it mm-hmm. in our culture. Mm-hmm. We typically think of race-based southern slavery here in the United States in which a slave is property and lacks any and every legal right. Yeah. Um, Well, the Greek word uh, for slave is doulos, and it can be translated slave, servant, or bond servant in our English Bibles. And it had more legal and social status. That that type of person had more legal and social status in first century Greco-Roman world than we would normally conceive of a slave having. So not slaves. They weren't slaves for all of their life normally. Um, a lot of times they were made slaves for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. They needed to pay something back. Um, and they weren't even necessarily slaves based on their race. Um, they were slaves based on other things and other criteria that were happening in their specific life. And it doesn't make it right, but it's at least helpful to know. In the Old Testament, you likely know, also speaks of slaves um, and uh, there's lots of uh, rules uh, for having slaves in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, and one of those rules is that slaves were freed uh, every seventh year. Um, generally, um, uh, the, the Old Testament sought to limit slavery and even provide protections for uh, mm-hmm. slaves mm-hmm. or servants. Um, And it wasn't uh, because of race either that somebody was a servant in the Old Testament. Normally it was because of circumstances and economics um, to pay somebody back in a sense. So to be clear, slavery, owning a person made in God's image, really does pervert God's created intention for humans. And a few other thoughts. Um, It's important to recognize uh, that practices like slavery and polygamy and divorce were common in antiquity. Yeah. This was the culture into which the apostles, the disciples, the writers of the New Testament were speaking. And biblical instruction, the fact that they touch on this phenomenon of slavery um, or recognize it, uh, isn't necessarily biblical approval. Right? Yeah. Um, they, uh, they are trying to instruct folks in their real-world life and mm-hmm. uh, what they're experiencing. So as we think about slavery— It's important to realize um, how uh, the message of the gospel really came and challenged it in a lot of ways. Um, The message of the gospel was radical uh, in how it challenged the idea of slavery. It said, you were created, all men were, in God's image, slave or free, slave or master. And then the gospel comes and says that God overcomes all racial and social and religious division at the cross, and he's creating a new people a people that will one day join together to worship him for all eternity. And so this new message was slowly but surely working its way into the fabric of the first century world as the apostles and disciples proclaimed this new message. And they didn't necessarily abolish it all at once, but I think that their message is a lot more radical and pushes against slavery a lot more strongly than we tend to believe yeah. today. Absolutely, and the moral principles that undergird the biblical message were
0: used by the abolitionists to finally get rid of slavery.
1: Yes, uh, Christians can be um, can be credited with uh, with ending the type of slavery that we know mm-hmm. uh, think in our of minds. William
0: Wilberforce in England.
1: John Newton, yep. um, and so uh, can be credited to the church and, and Christians that uh, that held to this idea that creation uh, is important, every man is made in God's image, and the gospel makes us one in Christ. And then the last thing I'll point out, too, is there's a whole book devoted to um, the idea of slavery, and it's a it's a really probably one of the more forgotten books of our New Testament. Uh, out of the 27 books we have... Uh, This is a book that um, if you were to power rank uh, the letters of the New Testament, this would probably be near the bottom of the rankings. But Philemon was a book written to Philemon by Paul about a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus, in the course of running away, became a Christian. And the letter is basically Paul sending Onesimus back to Philemon And encouraging uh, and instructing Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother, Mm. receive him as you would receive me. Uh, And so it allows you um, an inside track into Paul's thinking, Um, even encouraging a slave owner to receive a slave back, not as a slave, but as a brother, because of the gospel dynamic and the Mm -hmm. gospel power at play in their lives. That is powerful,
0: yeah. Well, that was a hard-hitting question. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Okay. Um, all right. So our second question tonight says, um, so it kind of references a response that we gave last week, um, to, to one of the earlier sermons that says, I believe you responded to my question on the passage from Mark five, where Jesus waited, waited to heal Jairus's daughter until he was physically present with her. And you, you talked about this by saying it was a nod to Jesus's humanity. um, But if this is what you're saying, how does that line up with the events of Mark 7 with the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was healed while Jesus was nowhere near her?
1: Yep. In the Gospels, you do see Jesus sometimes taking his time uh, in miracles and other times uh, performing miracles immediately and maybe not even in the presence of people uh, for whom the miracles are performed. I think of uh, the raising of Lazarus, and it seems very intentionally in John 11 that Jesus is taking his time to get there so that he can demonstrate to that audience his power uh, and so that he can demonstrate um, something that they need to see um, to be encouraged or to be convicted. You see it with Jairus's daughter too. Jesus walks with Jairus, he does not immediately heal his daughter from a distance. But he had to have had um, a specific intention uh, for um, walking with Jairus and taking his time. In the passage that we read last week about the Seraphonician women, our woman, uh, you notice that Jesus healed her daughter immediately. And I can't help but think, uh, as we talked about that passage, that part of it is because he was so impressed with her faith. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, he almost just pushed the chips to the middle of the table and said, I fold. Um, It's the one instance where uh, a mortal kind of got uh, the better of Jesus, um, in a sense. And so at the end of the day, the way I think about it is sometimes Christ's humanity comes to the forefront in His miracles uh, and in His life, um, and other times we see His divinity uh, come to the forefront and take the center stage. And um, it's His prerogative. And, uh, and one of the things that you have to consider is that normally when you're thinking about these things, it's, it's better to think both and, and never either, or
0: Mm -hmm. we have to be careful there because if you lean too hard on either one of those directions, you enter into heresy territory very, very quickly.
1: That's where a lot of the heresies, especially with regard to Christology in the first, second and third centuries, that's where the root of, of the heresies, they were debating divinity and humanity. Uh, and uh, normally it was uh, an either-or proposition that led to heresy, uh, but when folks came in and balanced it with both-and, that's normally um, where uh, they set the the ship back Mm -hmm. to rights Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about Jesus and his his person.
0: Is there something to the fact, too, that in, in the Mark 7 story, the the story is not so much about the healing of the daughter, but about the interaction with the woman?
1: Yes, I think that that's a great um, insight into that passage. Um, it really is about Jesus and this Seraphonician woman, mm-hmm. um, and her daughter is the beneficiary of her great faith. Um, and so um, I think that that's another aspect at play there.
0: Wow, interesting. Okay, all right, so we'll go on to a third question. This third one is kind of interesting. It kind of has to do with some of the labels that we put on Um, different, I don't know, portions of the church. So the third question is, what is meant by the term evangelicalism? Is TGC evangelical? And then what are the marks of an evangelical church?
1: Yeah, Trinity Grace, just off the bat, would be considered an evangelical church. And there are different ways of understanding that term. Yeah, we should define that because on one hand, you hear it
0: defined as Affirming the authority of scriptures and the supremacy of Christ, mm-hmm. but then there's this like colloquial definition of um, people who raise their hands a lot, and and you know there's loud drums and stuff during the during the service. So how do we understand
1: this? Yep, I understand it, and I think one of the best ways to understand it is by looking um, or thinking about an onion. Um, In some ways, uh, you can think about it uh, as an onion that as you peel it, you get deeper into uh, defining distinctions about who you are. And so primarily, Trinity Grace on the outside of the onion is orthodox. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the incarnation. We believe that salvation comes by Christ dying on a cross and being raised from the dead uh, um, for the victory of his people. And that puts us in the camp of really anybody that would claim to be a Christian, Mm -hmm. Protestant and Catholic, um, are all under the umbrella of uh, the term orthodox. Um, Is
0: there anything, sorry to take you off track a little bit, but is there anything that would maybe claim to be Christian or has a Christian flavor that is outside of that circle?
1: Yeah, I think of Mormons. Okay. That's what I was thinking um, too. Would, uh, would be outside of that circle, particularly because they do not hold Jesus to be the second person of the Trinity. Mm. Uh, In fact, um, don't even believe they uh, hold to a Trinity at all. Okay. Um, And so uh, the Orthodox umbrella really uh, covers lots of different denominations Um, and even uh, Catholics and Protestants and that split. The umbrella covers that even. You take it a step further, you peel the onion back, and I guess you could come to what we call evangelical. And uh, the word evangelical in some circles simply means Protestant, and I don't think that's a bad way of understanding it necessarily. It can be a helpful way. Mm -hmm. Um, And in others, it's really wrongly used to refer to the American Christian right Mm -hmm. um, and the Republican Party even. Um, yeah, and, anytime
0: you're watching election coverage, you always see where the evangelicals in scare quotes are leaning.
1: Yep. And I think, generally speaking, I think of evangelical more in terms of the historic Protestant faith. Okay. Um, we're an evangelical church uh, in that we embrace those classic Christian doctrines, those basic Christian doctrines that have really been downplayed and rejected by modern mainline progressive. Mm-hmm denominations, especially in the 19th century. Um, So some of the convictions that we have as an evangelical church is uh, we believe in the person and work and necessity of Jesus, Uh, meaning that um, there's an emphasis on Christ. We believe that he's the only source of salvation. And we, um, we highlight that in our preaching, in our liturgy, in our songs, mm-hmm. um, and that's, uh, that's one aspect of being evangelical. The other is the authority of Scripture. We believe the Holy Scriptures are completely trustworthy and the ultimate authority for our beliefs and our lifestyle. We believe that uh, the Scriptures are the Word of God. They're inerrant and they're infallible. Um, they were breathed out by Him for us. Uh, We also believe that salvation is by faith alone. There's Mm -hmm. nothing we could do to earn God's favor. It's all because of Christ and what He's done on our behalf, and we uh, appropriate or receive that salvation by faith in Him. And those are really the three main characteristics um, that would set us apart from uh, more mainline um, modern critics uh, that that really uh, came to prominence uh, in the middle um, of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then you could take it even further. You know, uh, you could, you could peel the onion back even more and say, we're reformed. Okay. Um, And then uh, you could take it a step further and say, we're Presbyterian, Mm -hmm. which really doesn't hit on our theology. That's about our church government. Yeah. Um, We are governed by elders. uh, And, um, and so you can peel the onion uh, down. Evangelical is a layer of the onion uh, that, Tends to be towards the beginning. Um, that's interesting that it's towards
0: the beginning because so many people want to use that label to refer to a very, maybe not very small, but a very specific group. That's uh, uh, probably a few more layers down
1: than th- that onion. I think so, and you, that's why it's so important just to define your terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it can be a negative, uh, a negative word in a lot of folks' minds, but in my mind, it's a positive term. Yes, me too. Um, and so uh, you've got a it's, it's helpful to define that term. Yeah. This is helpful for if anyone's like me and you just like to put things in mental boxes
0: before you start to understand the gray area between them. That's just kind of how I operate. So those Mm -hmm. kinds of conversations are really helpful for me. Um, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up for the night. Michael, do you have any other thoughts?
1: I don't, those are some great questions. Um, and hopefully, uh, um, some responses that were satisfying or at least got the gears turning.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, hey, guys, thanks for listening. That's going to do it for another edition of Question and Response. As always, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to our podcast and send your questions in. You can email those questions to michael at trinitygracesa.org or text them anonymously to 210-920-0783. And next week, Michael's going to be out of town, going on a little vacation. Where are you headed, Michael?
1: We're going to be heading to Florida for the week. Real excited about it.
0: Nice. Spent some time on the beach. Mm -hmm. So Michael's going to be gone. We will not be gone. We're going to have a special guest. Curtis Castleberry will be joining us to talk about RUF and the things that God's doing in that ministry. Uh, So tune in next week. Check that out. Take care.